Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. I can't believe I need to talk about this yet again. Dog training methods. There are still too many dog trainers out there doing things that just make all of you cringe. At least I hope they do. We'll talk with dog trainer Stephen Frost about that. Dr. Gerald Bell is the chair of the World Small Animal Veterinary Association Hereditary Disease Committee and adjunct professor at Tufts University College of Veterinary Medicine in clinical genetics. And I'll tell you, I was, Dr. Bell, so surprised when I saw this in a press release from the World Small Animal Veterinary Association saying there is an international canine welfare crisis. Those are fighting words. They're pretty strong words, really. And I've been, in, I've been doing this forever, you know, a long time. And I've not, I followed the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, commonly called WASAVA, for those in the industry. I've never heard such a thing, such strong words. So this must be a huge concern. And we're talking about brachiocephalic dogs. That's where we'll start. And I'll start with asking you, what are brachiocephalic dogs? Uh, well, they are uh, breeds that have short, uh, bred with short noses. And uh, and so the the crisis is not so much that, um, that breeding to an extreme anatomy has caused a, a genetic disease that, that causes them to suffer and even to die at younger ages than other dogs. Um, the crisis is that uh, is that these breeds have become so popular that they've become the top breeds in the world. And so the frequency of seeing this syndrome uh, has grown exponentially. And this is where, where the crisis takes place in that uh, we have dogs that cannot regulate their own temperature and they go into heat stroke and they can die or, or just from chronic, uh, a chronic life of breathlessness where they cannot get enough oxygen, uh, they, um, they die much younger and die due to their respiratory difficulties. And it's not that all dogs of these breeds have this issue, but a large portion of them do. And unfortunately, by breeding to an extreme anatomy where, where breeders have unwittingly selected for a shorter and shorter nose as, as short as they can get it, um, they've created this health issue. All right, a couple things there to unpack. First of all, I personally congratulate Wasava and your committee for taking a stand. Uh, but I would argue that, yes, the problem is worse now because many of these breeds are incredibly popular. But I'd argue it's still not a good thing, even if they weren't so popular. Not fair to those dogs. It doesn't need to be this way, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. Now, explain what brachiocephalic obstructive airway syndrome is, because that is a part of the story, I think. Well, it, it's a combination of, of several um, parts of their anatomy that impedes their ability to take air in uh, to their lungs. Uh, and, um, and some of the breeds, the three big breeds that have the biggest problems are French Bulldogs, who are now becoming the number one breed in the world. They have replaced uh, Labrador Retrievers as the number one breed uh, in terms of numbers. Um, and they tend to have what's called uh, narrow nostrils, the scientific term is stenotic narrows, but, but what it means is when you look at their nostrils, they're closed down, 
And so they're not moving the air through their nose that they're, that dogs should be able to breathe through their nose. So to be able to breathe, they have to open their mouths to breathe. And, and that is not a, a, a good way for a dog to, to exist. Uh, the, the second part of that is, um, is that they have what's called an, an elongated soft palate. So their palate in the back of their throat um, extends further back than it should, um, and it obstructs the, uh, their larynx or their windpipe area, uh, um, the opening to the windpipe. And with the, because they're breathing through their mouths, the turbulence throughout their lifetime actually causes that soft palate uh, to thicken up, and, and it can actually block um, the uh, airflow in the back of the throat. And the third component of this is a very narrow uh, windpipe or trachea. And this occurs uh, more so in the bulldog breed um, and, and can be diagnosed through a radiograph. And essentially what it is, it's, it's a, if you think of the trachea as a straw that you're trying to breathe through, um, it becomes too narrow and you're not able to move enough oxygen through that straw to be able to, um, to function normally. All right, a couple of comments. First of all, for what it's worth, according to the American Kennel Club, which we'll talk about in a moment, but according to the AKC, America's by far number one registry for dog breeds, Labrador retrievers are still number one on the list. But in many places, yes, French bulldogs are very, very popular, oftentimes number two. And in some places in America, they are the most popular breed. Uh, I want to equate everything you said in a scientific way to this. Imagine you're on a beautiful day, you're in Boston, you're, or it could be anywhere, and you're on this beautiful day taking a walk around the block. And it's, say, it's 72 degrees outside. And you're loving the sunshine. You're just having a great time. Now, people are not dogs. I understand that. But imagine taking a walk, same circumstance, 72 degrees, sunny outside, or even not sunny outside, and barely being able to make it around the block. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And so, so in reality, what we're dealing with here is um, it, it's human nature. And people, uh, when I see these breeds in my, in my clinics, um, you can hear them breathing. Uh, they snore when they're sleeping because they have uh, obstructive apnea. Uh, they... Um, you know, they get very labored so that you can't take them out on hot days. Uh, and these are all um, aspects of this syndrome that are not normal for a dog. And, and unfortunately, we normalize them and say, well, it's a brachycephalic breed, it's a short-nosed breed, and, and that's what they do. But, but many, many uh, dogs, you know, half or more of the dogs in these breeds don't do those things. And, and have proper um, uh, breathing and, and are able to live normal lives. And so really it's, it's, it's understanding that we, through our breeding practices, unfortunately have created a situation where, uh, where the dogs are suffering due to their anatomy. And, and when you say, well, you know, it, the numbers don't matter, uh, that is true as well, because we have lots of examples of extreme anatomy where, uh, where dogs are too big and they die young, where dogs are too small and they have uh, um, issues with that, where dogs have too much skin or too much hair or too much angulation. And it's the more is better 
um, a philosophy that has created some of these issues that predispose to disease. And, and that's where we have to moderate uh, what we're doing, what breeders are doing with breeding, and bring these dogs back to a more moderate anatomy that is compatible with, with normal life. Well said, and absolutely true. Now, what I want to talk about next is why we have such a huge problem with all of this in America tied in with puppy mills, tied in with pet store sales, tied in even with the American Kennel Club, and what's being done, because you are the world small animal veterinary association, what's being done in some other countries that may be more proactive, I'm thinking the UK specifically, than what we're not doing in America. All of that coming up next here on WGN. The World Small Animal Veterinary Association is doing something about it. They want to, and they're calling brachiocephalic breeds now uh, a crisis in veterinary medicine. The chair of the committee that is behind all this, Dr. Gerald Bell, is here. That's the Hereditary Disease Committee. Dr. Bell, also an adjunct professor at Tufts University College of Veterinary Medicine in genetics. This is a great part about genetics, and we're talking about some of the breeds that we're going to see this and that we are seeing this in more often than others, which include English bulldogs, French bulldogs, but we see this in other breeds as well, a wide range of dogs that are brachiocephalic. They, you, you described it scientifically, Dr. Bell. I'll just say they look like they walked into a wall. And some dogs individually have more issues than others, but we're talking about Pekingese, we're talking about Shih Tzus, we're talking about uh, Toy Spaniels, we're talking about, I mean, the list really goes on, but some are more extreme than others. Is that right? That is correct. All right, so we've got this, and it's a worldwide issue as well. Now, some countries have, a couple of years ago, actually in the UK, there was a, as I think about it, there was a documentary that exposed the problem that we're talking about, that some of these dogs really suffer from dramatic quality of life issues. And I want to ask you one thing before I talk about that. In America, we also have another problem. So you talked about, and quite, uh, and very articulately, in a very specific medical way, uh, why these dogs oftentimes have a problem just walking around the block if it's 70 degrees out, say, and can't even do it if it's 85 degrees out, for example. Does it exasperate the issue that so many dogs in America, the latest data is about half, are overweight or obese? Absolutely. Um, The researchers uh, say that uh, 50% of the um, liability for uh, um, breathing issues uh, is environmental and is based on obesity as well. So keeping, if you have a short-nosed breed, um, keeping them in a, in a lean or a, a fit uh, body condition is an important aspect of this. And we're talking about brachiocephalic obstructive airway syndrome, or BOAS, as it's sometimes called. That's the medical description of what veterinarians such as yourself have in recent years put together. So let's go back to the U.K., There was a documentary in the U.K. that exposed the problems that we talked about in the first part of the show here. Uh, And their breeding organization stepped up and said, you know, we're going to do something about it. In America, and I don't know how well that's going or not, but in in America, it's, it's a complicated issue because you've got many of these dogs that are purchased, the French bulldogs, the bulldogs, 
the sort of trendy, even Shih Tzus, the sort of trendy dogs that are brachiocephalic dogs are really from puppy mills in the first place or large commercial facilities that aren't puppy mills per se, but we don't know much about them because they remain in mystery on purpose, and they're sold through pet stores. And the American Kennel Club, actually, when people like me, I'm going to get into politics just a little bit, say we should ban sales at pet stores, as now six states have done, and over 300 cities across the country, lots of counties have done this as well, and more states to come, by the way, uh, that would, in my view, help a little bit. But the American Kennel Club actually fights those, therefore encouraging pet store sales. And it seems to me the puppy mills really don't care about being responsible breeders. Do you kind of get where I'm going with this? I do. And I, I also have a slightly different view of, of what you're talking about here because I have worked with commercial breeders that are very health-conscious and health-focused, that do their health testing much more than uh, some breed club members do, and certainly much more than the backyard breeders do um, that uh, people just want to breed their dogs. And the issue with popular breeds is that the majority of dogs being bred are not being bred by commercial kennels, are not being bred by breed club members, but are being bred by people that own a dog and that decide, I'm going to breed my French Bulldog, and you've got one, let's breed them together, and, and we'll sell them. And that's where the majority of them are, are being sold, in the populist breeds, and that's what, what grows their popularity. So, so the issue is recognition that, um, that if you're going to breed a dog, if there's a purposefully bred litter, that health has to be a primary concern of what you're going to produce in puppies and that health-focused breeding is an important concern. So what should, you're about to answer, I think, what should consumers look for? So um, in different countries, um, they do have uh, ways to to determine whether a breeder is a health-focused breeder, and it's very specific to the breed um, that's being bred. You know, a little breed, you're not going to worry about hip dysplasia as much as in a a large-sized breed, um, but you're going to be worrying more about about slipping kneecaps, uh, and and in the short nosed breeds, you're going to be worried about um, about boas. And so, um, in different countries, we have different uh, different lists of pre breeding health screen tests that should be done on the parents. Uh, and the OFA in the USA, which is OFA.org, is the website. Um, they list the pre-breeding health tests that should be done on each breed that you can ask a breeder um, if you're purchasing a dog, uh, have these tests been done? And that would indicate whether you have a health-focused breeder or not. That's the Orthopedic Foundation of America? Is that... Uh, it, it, the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals is where it America, started okay. as yeah. a hip dysplasia registry. Right. But it is now the largest registry of health screening information um, for all diseases um, across all dog breeds. Right. So uh, there can be testing, and, and breeders can work with the Orthopedic Foundation. Why do I want to say of America? For animals. <laughs> uh, and that that is happening. There's no question about that, that you're right about that. The problem with the puppy store purchases is there is no documentation about any testing for anything. And oftentimes when they say it's a, I don't know, uh 
a Shih Tzu, what this happens to be is a mix of who knows what. Maybe some Shih Tzu is in it. Maybe some Shih Tzu isn't in this dog. There's no way to necessarily know or even track where the dog originally came from as far as a breeder is concerned because pet stores kind of don't want people to know. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Uh, This is an important topic, and I'm so glad, so glad the World Small Animal Veterinary Medical, the, the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, is on top of it and se- taking this seriously, calling it a crisis. I'm grateful uh, to you, Dr. Bell, for doing so. And if we could help any further, please let us know. Well, we do have a website, um, a uh, site on our website. So it's wsava.org/boas. BOAS, brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome, Mm -hmm. and on there you'll find a video that describes BOAS and explains the issue that we have. Um, It is in uh, five different languages so far. Uh, It's an international website. Um, It has other resources for you to understand about uh, BOAS, and uh, we're trying to get the word out because it's not just the kennel clubs and the breeders, as we say, because these are very populous breeds. People are just breeding these dogs and not understanding that they're creating more of an issue. And, and so there is a functional test called respiratory function grading um, that, that actually tests the function of breathing of these dogs that has been introduced by the OFA. Um, it was requested by the three parent breed clubs, the AKC breed clubs of the French Bulldog, the Bulldog, and the Pug. And, which is um, which and, is a very important thing, and those breed clubs are standing up to do the right thing. So I give them credit. I give you credit for doing this, but really, we are out of time. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Chew allergic to cats. There is a solution that you will not believe, and we'll talk about that next week with Doctor Mike Lappin. It also turns out, as we do an all cat program next week, you love cats. Tell your friends who love cats to listen in next week here on WGN. So it turns out that cats often suffer pain from arthritis more than we ever would have thought, even veterinarians would have thought. Uh, new research, relatively new research, really indicates this. I mean, it was thought that, oh, cats are really small. They, they don't have arthritis pain like big dogs or, or even like people. Well, it turns out they might suffer arthritis more than dogs do surprised, and cats don't tell us they're in pain. So next week, we talk with Dr. Mike Petty of signs of pain in cats. So how do you know your cat is in pain? And then a new product called Silencia, which is kind of amazing. It's a game changer. That's next week. He is a renowned credential dog trainer, president of A Sound Beginning Chicago. Steve Frost, I can't believe we're having this conversation. And what prompted it are are two things. Uh, One is me seeing a video that was sent to me and then sent to me and sent to me and sent to me by listeners and people who read and what I write in social media. And uh, it's of a dog trainer at a board and train facility in McHenry County, I believe, uh, who literally hits the dog uh, to get the dog to do whatever he wanted the dog to do. Uh, And also a conversation with... uh, a friend of mine and a friend of yours, a legendary dog trainer, uh, Julie Dorsey, who said, well, I've been sent similar videos, a bunch of them, about different people doing the same sort of thing over the past couple of months. And 
you know, I, I can't believe, Steve, that we're still seeing this, that people are still allowing this to go on. Sometimes they don't know what goes on, which we'll talk about, with their dogs. Are you seeing the same sort of thing? You know, unfortunately, I I am. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they should be in a position to trust professionals uh, with their pets. But dog training, as you know, is a very unregulated field. And I think one of the appeals for people, whether they're fully aware of what's actually happening or not, is that punishment gives the illusion of solving what is often a very complex problem with many, many variables. But the unfortunate truth is, is that there's there's some pretty serious ramifications for treating an animal like that that initially may suppress that original problematic behavior, but long-term really tend to compound the issue more often than not and end up creating far more problems than they're ever going to hope to solve. I think there's two buckets here. I think one are uh, people that board and train the facility markets a certain way. They make certain promises about how they use loving training techniques and all of that. And many board and train facilities do just that. However, you don't really know what's happening. The other bucket are people that generally may be desperate, may have tried one or two other trainers or not. Maybe they really believe you have to dominate your dog in order to get your dog to do what you need your dog to do, and that is the best way to teach dogs. And I want to talk separately about each of those buckets because I think they're a little different. So the person who says, I'm going to board and train, do you sometimes, even before you hear what facility it is, and I'm not going to target certain facilities, but do you get a certain queasy feeling, if you will, in your stomach thinking, uh-oh, I hope this is one of the good ones? You know, un- unfortunately, I do. And and there's a pretty solid reason for that. And really what it comes down to is training is about building a relationship, a relationship founded on trust, not only with the individuals that interact with the dog, um, that experience the problematic behaviors, but also the the environment and the context in which they're they're experiencing it. So, when that is outsourced to another individual, um, as well as a another location or just contextual association, certainly there's wonderful board and trains out there that can utilize reinforcement based strategies to accomplish a lot. Um, but very rarely uh, does it actually quote fix a problem. And more often than not, folks are just outsourcing that relationship. They're really, in my professional opinion, is just no substitute for, you know, learning the tools and techniques, utilizing positive reinforcement and science to build that relationship in the context that that animal uh, needs to succeed. I tend to agree with you. And for all the reasons you said, which I want to elaborate on, and then there's a whole other set of reasons that I want to talk about, too. And that is like that video I saw. I mean, that person probably had no clue that that trainer was going to hit their dog. How they got the video of this, I don't have any idea. And it's not like this is a one-and-done exception to the rule. So I want to talk about that, too. But, yes, I want to talk about even really good board and train trainers that are responsible, maybe credentialed appropriately, that are doing a good job. But to me, dog training is about a relationship from one end of the leash to the other. And then the board and train people say, well, we're going to teach the people what we taught the dog. That is well and good, but it isn't for me a substitute to you actually being there. One more thing, Steve. If we're talking puppies, we're also talking about the exposure of those dogs in a dog training class setting 
to a whole lot of other people in a positive way and other dogs. And and you don't know what's happening in that board and train, how they are doing that, and are they really meeting enough of a variety of people? I mean, rabbis on roller skates or young women and old women and everything, just a variety of people. Absolutely. And, you know, that's uh, one of the other problems with board and trains is that you know, unless we have a, a very transparent organization, um, which often would include things like live webcams in this day and age that we can readily log into and actually see and observe what uh, is going on with our pet, it's just hard to guarantee what specifically is, is going on. And, you know, I've been privy to some organizations that do do a wonderful job building the skill set for then a very busy or overwhelmed owner to then continue on and take over effectively building the relationship thereafter. But at the same time, too, uh, it is still a commercial operation, and they do have other dogs to care for. There's limited time, et cetera. So at the end of the day, it's just really hard to guarantee the quality of care that you really need, um, you know, for our pets, and especially with young puppies. I mean, that is such a a critical time in their development um, where that maturing brain is just so fragile and susceptible uh, to lasting harm based on what may potentially happen or not happen to them. Um, So we want to make sure that, Especially at that young age, we are providing them with the utmost quality of care, really no different than if we had a human infant. So the video that I'm talking about is on my website, stevedale.tv. You can search for it. Uh, There are sadly videos like that that you and I have seen. The board and train facility may market itself. We are kind, we are loving, but they're not always. How these people got that video, I have no idea, Steve. But it happened where they actually and presumably frequently do this. And I'm told that the facility actually pushed back and said this is the right thing to do. There are trainers, I guess, who still in this day and age believe that using physical punishment even is the right thing to do. Yeah, so I've I've seen the video a few times. I've I've studied it um, just from a behavioral aspect. Um, And... Not only was it just blatantly inappropriate, but I would even go so far as to say that it, it was bordering on criminal abuse uh, of that animal. Um, I could not ascertain specific training criteria um, that, that that punishment was hoping to achieve. Um, and on top of that, it was a trainer effectively uh, both slapping and hitting a dog, perceivably for, for noncompliance, um, even though I, as a trained professional, couldn't even determine um, what the the lack of compliance was other than a a very frustrated, quote, trainer who effectively lost their temper. So when we come back from this break, here's what I want to know, Steve. I want to know if you think, and you're a dog trainer, if you think that dog training like that, and you suggested you might, but I want to hear more, really ought to be prosecuted as animal abuse. We will find out. Well, well, don't tell us yet. We'll find. We have to tease the audience. We'll find out when we come back. Right here on WGN, we're talking to dog trainer Steve Frost, the credentialed dog trainer. He is the president of a sound beginning Chicago dog training that trains dogs all over the Chicago area. Sometimes, I guess, you go to homes. Sometimes you have classes. Is that right, Steve? That is correct. Yeah and is well-known not only in the Chicago area, but all over the country, and uh, for good reason. So we're talking before the break about a video that we saw where the dog trainer 
And I'm guessing you cringe even when you associate what you do with what this guy does, yet you're both called dog trainers, uh, that he actually hits the dog. Should these kinds of things, aversive training in general, should it be animal abuse? Is that what it is? And should we actually prosecute this as animal abuse, which we clearly have proof of in this instance because we have a video? So, great question, and I think you know, a good way for our audience to think about it is that while dogs are, are vastly different from humans and, and children, there are many parallels. And I think that there fundamentally is a difference through for the average person who perhaps may be misguided or even a little frustrated um, to make some poor choices with their animal, much in the same way a misguided or frustrated parent might make some poor choices um, with children. However, there really is a, a line, and I do feel that that particular video with the amount of, of just blatant physical interaction, I mean, the gentleman was, was quite literally striking that dog repeatedly um, for things that I can't even perceive as a trained professional, that to me very much so was abuse. And the reason I'm going to constantly call it abuse is that it just wasn't grounded in anything that I feel could even be uh, called training in that it's not only going to not accomplish anything for that particular animal other than make it incredibly fearful, um, not only of strangers, of potentially men, of, of that individual in particular, but it's going to have lasting implications in all likelihood for that particular animal and effectively is damaging that creature's psyche, um, perhaps even irreparably based on the, the quite cruel treatment um, that that animal received effectively. It was, it was close to a, a beating. So you have a uh, daughter, don't you? A young daughter? Son. Son, sorry. Okay. How old is he? Um, So he just turned two. All right. And if he did something you don't like, uh, maybe uh, your wife would give him a spanking, or you might. I don't need to know that. Uh, But that's in the privacy of your home. I'm not defending that. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Let's say your son goes to daycare, and on camera you see an individual beat your son. That is prosecutable. That person is supposed to be a professional, and professionals just aren't supposed to do that, right? How is this? Now, I know that dogs aren't people, as you said, but dogs are sentient beings. They are members of our family. There are laws against animal abuse. How is this not animal abuse? So, great question, Stephen. And just to add, I don't thank my son, nor does my wife. (laughs) I I Um, wasn't suggesting that. As a as a two year old, if he makes poor choices, that's on me as his caregiver and parent to manage the situation and redirect and teach him appropriately, much in the same way I would uh, with an animal. Um, and I think you're right in the sense that we should be able to trust professionals to act professionally. Um, and from the video that we saw, for this individual to lose their temper um, and to start striking an animal physically far beyond discernible training criteria in in any way, shape, or form, uh, to me, would be no different than a professional caregiver beating a child. And it should absolutely be prosecutable because there is no grounding in terms of what that person was doing that would in any way, shape, or form benefit the animal. And as I mentioned previously, in fact, is likely to cause irreparable damage to that animal's psyche and socialization. You know, I want to talk about the science of dog training in a moment, which I know you have studied. Before we do, at a very, very basic level, 
if our dogs are members of the family, if our dogs have real feelings, and we know that is true, they may not express them the same way we do, but obviously dogs have feelings. They're happy to see us. They tell us they're happy to see us. When uh, we scold them, sometimes they're tail goes down, right, if they have a tail, and they go off sulking somewhere, maybe we shouldn't be scolding them. But that suggests that dogs have feelings. We know that. If dogs are our best friends, how can we treat them any other way except the way we would treat our best friends? That's that's at a very basic level. But there's lots of science to indicate that Certain types of dog training are not only more humane, but more effective. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Uh, we tend to consistently see utilizing reinforcement-based strategies um, that our dogs are going to go above and beyond for us. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, what kind of relationship do you want to have with your dog? Do you want one that is rooted in, in trust, where a dog wants to work for you and with you, going above and beyond because they can trust that it'll produce the greatest positive consequence, or do you effectively want to rule your dog through intimidation and, and fear? And even then, what the science has told us is that the latter has a lot of negative implications with regards to behavioral health um, and various disorders of fear, aggression, and anxiety, while the former, utilizing reinforcement-based strategies, uh, we simply don't see that, that risk uh, of behavioral fallout, which is why we embrace it so wholeheartedly And again, we want to have a positive relationship with our dogs because they are family members. We shouldn't have to rule them through fear. And quite frankly, with even the most mild, skillful application of positive reinforcement, we we don't need to rule them through fear in any way, shape, or form. You know, uh, people get frustrated. I think that's the other thing. So people say, I have tried that. I've tried that. I've tried that. All positive reinforcement. But my dog still does that. And, And out of desperation... They accept anyone who says, and some of these people travel all over the country saying this, who says, well, I know how to do it. What do you say to those folks? So to those folks, I I effectively feel as though they're selling snake oil. Um, I think that they will be able to, utilizing fear and pain and intimidation, suppress problematic behavior for a time. But much as you know, Steve, Training is complex, and there's a lot of variables as to why a dog may be doing what it's doing the way it's doing. Um, and to simply claim that, you know, immediately I can fix this forevermore um, is simply a, a falsehood. And while it may immediately suppress that behavior, long-term, that behavior is likely to come back, and it's likely to be compounded. And I certainly understand the desperation of some folks. I'm, I'm a human. I'm a parent. I would be lying if I said I never got frustrated after a long day with the kiddo. Um, but the reality is that's what we sign up for, both with children and with dogs. They, they are animals. They will do things that frustrate us from time to time, but we're humans. We have superior intellect. We can walk away. We can take a breath. We can take a breather. And we can also think logically and rationally, you know, what are we trying to do with this animal? Is this an animal that is well-suited to what we're asking of the animal? And at a minimum, have we explored various management strategies? Are we attempting to put this animal in a situation that is consistently beyond its inherent abilities? And my firm belief is that if I ever felt that I had to use significant punishment, pain, or fear uh, to get, quote, success from an animal, then fundamentally, I think I probably had the wrong animal for the task at hand. And and that's my problem, not the animal's problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well put. 
How do people find a sound beginning, which you are president of? So they can give us a call on our direct line at 630-776-8197. That's 630-776-8197. Or they can find us online at www.asoundbeginningchicago.com. Okay, it's a topic I don't think we can talk about enough. We just did. Stephen Frost, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. It's a giant veterinary conference in Las Vegas, and for, I don't know, 20 years or so, I've been attending. Oftentimes, I speak at this conference. I did four times this year, and in the exhibit hall, which is a giant exhibit hall, about every company in veterinary medicine is there, represented in some way. At the Anavive Animal Health booth, there was Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, you know, from the National Football League, retired, tight end. What was he doing there? Well, he was talking about Valley Fever and his dog. You see, he went to school at uh, in Arizona. And in Arizona, he went to college there. And in Arizona, there is a problem with Valley Fever. In Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California, Southern Nevada. And it's spreading. I mean, it really is a serious issue. It's a uh, fungal disease, and it can kill dogs, and for that matter, can affect people similarly. So there is a vaccine coming out for dogs, and he was there talking about it. I've never, I mean, he was sitting down for this interview, and I still have a stiff neck from looking up to him. He's like 80 feet tall. I had no idea, and he was very, very nice. We will hear that interview in an upcoming week. But there's more going on in the National Football League having to do with pets Some players celebrate the Super Bowl by going to Disney World. Uh, You may have heard about this. Derek Nandi of the Kansas City Chiefs, he's the defensive lineman, had something else in mind. It turns out after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, he said all of the dogs at a shelter in Kansas City adopt them. I'll pay for it. And he did, along with Zeewee Peak Pets. And we're talking about over a 100 adoptions, not only after the Super Bowl, but he's been doing this for a while. So over the past couple of years, another retiree, Tom Brady, he just expanded his family. He has now two kittens. Hooray! A video shows kittens tackling one another, which is something Brady is accustomed to. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early on WGN.